please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12 for this morning's reading. We'll be reading from Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 28. If you're using a church Bible, that is page 50 in the little black church Bibles at the front. Listen as I read from Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 28. This is what Holy Scripture says. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please take your Bibles this morning and open to uh, the Gospel of Mark, if you would. Gospel of Mark. If you are married or you've ever lived with a roommate, you have likely had that most remarkable experience of discovering that the way you have always done something is not the only way to do it. In fact, it might not be the best way to do it. In fact, you might have been spending your life doing something the wrong way only to get married or have a roommate who then graciously explains to you how you've been doing it all wrong for so long. For instance, the direction on which the toilet paper is to come out of the roll. Does it come over or does it go under? How long do you leave out dirty dishes before you wash them? A few moments, a few weeks. How often do you vacuum? Once a day? Once a year? How much money are you going to spend on what? Even at Christmas time, fake tree, real tree. The categories are endless. And many times we discover that our way which we were quite sure was the best way, is actually the wrong way to do something. It takes great humility to admit this. And being such a humble man as I am, I'm not sure why you're all laughing. <laughs> After several years of discussion and pushback in the Martin home, I finally admitted to Susan that she was right. The toilet paper goes over, not under. It was very difficult. I had to admit that I was wrong. If you're an underperson, you're wrong. Uh, I am right, and she was right, we're right, everything's right. That is the right way to do it. Look, there are lots of ways we let our culture or our experience or our assumptions shape what we do. We think we have considered all the data and reasoned our way to conclusions. But in reality, it might have just been the way our family did it, or maybe it was just what we grew up with, or maybe we never actually really thought about it before. And that's true in the church, too. 
especially with things we've just grown accustomed with, like the ordinances, like the Lord's Supper, which we're going to look at today. And to look at the Lord's Supper, you have to begin in the Old Testament. And maybe that in itself is a new revelation to you, that to understand what's happening with the Lord's Supper, you've got to start in the Old Testament. And after that, we're going to move into the New Testament, into one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Corinthians, because he's dealing with a whole lot of things in chapters 10, 11, and 12, but a lot of it centers on the Lord's Supper, and he lays out um, foundational concepts there that we might just miss reading through if we're not reading slowly and carefully. So this is going to be sermon number one on the Lord's Supper. At least there will be two, there might be three, because there's a lot we need to think about. I mean, have you, just, have you ever just wondered, what am I supposed to do when I hold the bread and hold the cup? Ever wondered about that? What's actually happening when we're doing this? Ever wondered about that? Can a Christian just spend his whole life never taking the Lord's Supper? In the Salvation Army, yeah. Is that wrong? Is that just preference? These are the kind of things we want to think about. And we're going to begin by summarizing what Dwight already read for us in Exodus chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. You need to be in Mark chapter 14. Here's the first thing you need to understand about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is rooted in the story of God's redemption of his people, in particular at Passover. So what, what this is happening here, the Lord's Supper... This is rooted in God's redemption of his people, in particular in the Passover. I'm using the word rooted, meaning Passover and the Lord's Supper are different things, but one flows out of the other. So Passover came first chronologically, and the Lord's Supper comes out of that. How do we know that? We know it for sure because the first Lord's Supper took place in a Passover meal. So this is Mark 14, verse 16. The disciples set out, went to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. This is, this is just days before the, the death of Christ. Drop down to verse 22. And as they were eating, eating what? They're eating the Passover meal. They're doing this once-a-year meal that they're supposed to do. Jesus says, get it ready. They're in the upper room. They're eating the Passover meal. And he took bread in the middle of the meal, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, prayed, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this is something, right? You're in the middle of the Passover, which is a Jewish uh, celebratory rite. You're in the middle of Passover, and Jesus hijacks it, and he says, I'm changing it into the Lord's Supper. So what's Passover? Passover is an annual meal that serves to remind Israel of their redemption out of slavery in Egypt. That is its purpose. It's reminding you annually, you were slaves, I bought you, I redeemed you. You would take an unblemished, a non-spotted, a, a good male lamb, and you would slaughter it for this meal. And you eat this meal very differently. Kids, this is how you want to eat all the time. You eat it really quick to get on to the next thing. Well, you're, you're, when you eat Passover, you're to eat it very quickly. With, with your shoes on and your staff in your hand, you eat it very quickly because that's commemorating the sudden escape from slavery in Egypt. You also eat it with bitter herbs. Why do you eat it with bitter herbs? The text doesn't precisely say, but seems to be indicating that that is to commemorate the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. It's to remind you where you came from. It's to remind you where you've gotten to and who did it. Now, some of the blood of the animal, of the lamb, is painted on the doorframe of the house where your entire family has to hide. Can you picture that? You, 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 you're killing a lamb to eat it, and you capture some of the blood, and you take a branch of hyssop, and you dab it on the doorway in the lintel. 
And then your family hides in the house. Hides from what? Well, it's a little bit of hides from who? In the first Passover, they're hiding from the 10th plague. Remember, God brings 10 plagues on Egypt. And the 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. And it is God's judgment against sin. And it's going to fall on everybody living in Egypt, including all of Israel, unless they sacrifice a lamb and apply the blood. If you were hiding behind the blood of the sacrifice, your firstborn male would be spared from the destroying angels. He would live. Since Egypt did not believe in Yahweh, they did not sacrifice lambs, they did not hide behind the blood of the sacrifice, and all of their firstborn were killed that night. But what happened if you painted the doorway with the blood of the substitute? Listen to Exodus 12 again, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here is the significance of that blood on the doorframe. God says, as I'm going through to oversee the death of the firstborn, as I'm traveling through Egypt to oversee the death of all the firstborn, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. What does he mean? He does not mean, I'll skip your address. He means, I will cover the door. <laughs> and the avenging angel will not enter. I'll cover the door to protect you from the plague that is coming. God promises to intercede and protect from wrath when he sees the blood of the substitution, when he sees the blood of the sacrifice. So when God arrives in Egypt to punish for sin, the Hebrews can't claim race, they can only claim grace. They had to have faith in God's substitute, the blood of the sacrificed lamb. And every year after this, the highlight of the year was Passover, the reenactment of this night by participating in this ceremonial meal, a picture of being spared from what their sins deserved and being delivered out of slavery into a promised land. Every Israelite understood it. So when with all of that kind of firmly entrenched in their minds, Jesus has now his 11 disciples. He sent Judas away. He's not part of this. They, these 11 disciples watch now as Jesus, in the middle of celebrating the Passover meal, took what it was and made it into what it had always been pointing toward. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on here. The true spotless one. 1 Peter 1.19, the lamb without blemish or spot. Hebrews 4.15, the one who was without sin. Hebrews 7.26, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. The final sacrifice who would endure the fire of God's wrath for sinners. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, the true and greater Passover 
Passover sacrifice, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, your Passover lamb. Just as blood on the on the, on the Passover door pointed to their redemption by the death of a lamb, so the blood on the Passion Cross points to our redemption by the death of the lamb. I think this is very important to get your head wrapped around. The Lord's Supper is not some random, meaningless, obscure religious rite. It is rooted in the story of redemption and Passover in particular. A central component of that story is sacrifice, a substitution. So when we take the Lord's Supper... We plant ourselves firmly in the long plan of redemption that was announced in Eden and finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ and ultimately in the new creation when he drinks with us again. We are announcing the gospel to the world every time we take of the bread and the cup. We're saying to the world, there's only one way to be saved. There is only one Savior from sin. You must be hidden behind his blood. He must be your sacrifice, your substitute. That's why when we take it, we stress to everybody in the room this most basic fact. You've got to be saved in order to participate. Just as baptism is a once-in-your-life visible sign of how God saved you, so the Lord's Supper is an ongoing visible sign of how God saved you. Baptism is like the front door into the house the family of God lives in. The Lord's Supper is like the ongoing family meal in the house. That means these two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are not for everybody. They're reserved for only one kind of person. A man or a woman who has believed the gospel, the good message that comes from God to the world. The good news says you're a sinner and you deserve hell. The good news also says I've provided a savior who will be your substitute. That's the news. But just knowing the news is never enough. If you watch the news and it says there's a tornado coming to Toronto in 10 minutes and you go out in your backyard on a lawn chair, you are not responding to the news in the appropriate way. This is news to be responded to. It's news to be obeyed. The gospel is news that you have to act upon. You have to repent is the Bible word. That means turn away from your sins. It's, it means looking to God and saying, I agree with you, God. My sins deserve an eternal hell. But repentance alone is not enough. For you must also believe, you must believe and put your confidence, your true trust, your dependence on the person of Jesus Christ. You must look to Jesus in your heart of hearts and say, I need a savior. You're the only one around. You're the only one the world's ever gonna get. I need you, save me. I don't care what words you use, my friend. As long as you're saying those things, as long as you understand you have sinned in ways that offend a holy God which was going to result in your eternal damnation and the only thing you can do is call upon and cling to the Savior that he's provided. Oh, why would you not do that? Why would you not at least have enough care for your own personal soul that you might try praying to God and asking him if these things are true? How I pray you would turn to Christ, run to Christ, believe on Christ, trust in Christ. Jump into that huge group of people who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Life's not going to be perfect after you do. Our next text in Corinthians proves that. But at the very least, 
you will have your hope secured on eternal life where all things will be made right forever and ever, world without end. Praise be to God. Now, there were some others who were set on this same path who trusted on Christ, repented from their sins, but they were stumbling around a little bit when the Apostle Paul decided he needed to write them a letter. So now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and turn to chapter 10. As Paul is correcting some of the errors, really chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, there, there's a, there's, you have to follow a long argument. I don't have time to show it all to you. I'm just going to show you some. Part of what Paul is teaching here is that the Lord's Supper is the local church's family meal. Right? That's what I'm going to be arguing for. The Lord's Supper is the local church's family meal. Now, to just sort of set the table a little bit, I want to tell you the two problems that were happening in Corinth that Paul is addressing. The first one is this. There were, there were members of the church in Corinth who were treating the Lord's table like it was something magical. Let me explain what I mean. They thought that their routine participation in the Lord's Supper guaranteed their salvation in a way that they could also worship idols. They figure as long as we do the Lord's Supper, God doesn't mind, we'll go and we'll worship idols as well. That, that kind of sums up the big problem in chapters 8 through 11. So they have this sort of magical view of the Lord's Supper as if the mere eating and drinking, the mere taking it is going to keep them safe. And as, and as we go through, it'll be worth noting that this idolatry included sexual immorality. Idolatry almost always includes sexual immorality. Today that might most likely be seen in something like viewing pornography. People gaze at the pretended sexual acts of other people in order to worship. What are they worshiping? They're worshiping themselves. All idolatry leads to self-worship. And Paul warns the Corinthians who claim to be Christians and yet are pursuing idolatry that they might end up in hell. So he talks about the such as are common to man temptations, chapter 10, verse 13. These things are different than the outright turning from God to worship an idol. One might even say that uh, worshiping idols is worshiping demons. Paul makes that kind of clear there. And so he goes into Israel's history. So he's writing to a New Testament church, but he reaches back into Israel's history. And he points out how their sexually perverse idolatry after their divine meal, which was the golden calf meal, led to their destruction. So an uninterrupted commitment to your functional God of choice can lead to the same thing even if you're regularly eating the divine meal of the Lord's Supper. That makes sense? So don't think just because you're taking the Lord's Supper that you can get away with idolatry. That's why he'll say in verse 14 of chapter 10, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So one way the Corinthians were totally misusing the Lord's Supper was by treating it the way foolish people do today, superstitiously. What do I mean, superstitiously? Like the mere eating and drinking did something to you, like going somewhere and getting some holy water splashed on you or having some religious rite spoken over you. That just ain't the way it works. Paul intends to correct this. They assume that they can participate in idol worship as Christians because they're eating the bread and drinking the wine at their Lord's Supper meal at their church. Like the mere act of taking the supper is some kind of lucky charm or bought them a pass. So that's problem number one. The second problem is this. They allowed their selfish individualism to make the meal divide rather than unite. Selfish individualism 
so transformed their celebration of the Lord's Supper that it was actually dividing the church, not uniting it. Individualism. We've talked a little bit about that. Interesting, it was a problem then, seems to be a problem now. Basically, they're operating with cultural norms in the assembly. They're bringing the world into the church because when they came together as the church, as the assembly, the rich ate one way, the poor ate another way, and Paul tells them, you know what, that's not even the Lord's Supper anymore. I don't know what it is, but it's not, it's, you're, not, you're not dining at Jesus' table. That ain't the Lord's Supper. Something else entirely. So these are the two errors that frame the final goal of his teaching on the Lord's Supper to this church. And there's all kinds of things we can learn along the way. So back to chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're just going to read our way through parts of the, of the narrative here. Chapter 10, verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, speaking about Israel, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So that's simple. We'll move on. Uh, no, that's not simple because Paul's doing some, like, allegorizing here and analogy here. He's doing all kinds of things here. I don't have time to show them and explain all of them to you. Let me just point out that he's beginning uh, to to set the table to talk about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about baptism here. Israel went through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses. They went through the Red Sea after God saved them, just as we go through the waters of baptism after God saves us. He's talking about the Lord's Supper here. Israel ate the manna that God supplied, just as we eat the symbolic bread of his body, which Christ supplies. Israel drank from water, which God miraculously supplied, just as we drink the symbol of blood, which Christ supplies. Then you go to verse 6. Now these things, what things? The deaths in the wilderness that he talked about in verse 5. They were overthrown in the wilderness. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Play is a euphemism for um, sensual, sexual contact. It can be in a marriage or otherwise, but that's, that's what was taking place. Golden calf, they eat their meal, and then there's basically something like a mass orgy of some kind. That's why God judges them. We, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You think you can just worship idols over here? And you're okay because you're sipping and munching on the Lord's Supper? Take heed lest you fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Again, idolatry is different than run-of-the-mill temptations and trials. God's going to provide the way of escape from temptations, but you need to flee from your idols. Are you fleeing from your idols? With that in mind, Paul returns this idea of the Lord's Supper, verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul's teaching something very similar, very important here. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, right? The cup we bless, the bread we break. It's a clear reference to the Lord's Supper. But he uses this very interesting word, participation. The word is koinonia. It's fellowship. And so right away, just with that word, we we begin to learn something very vital. Taking part in the Lord's Supper, communion, is a fellowship, is a communion of people, the ecclesia, the gathering, relating with each other to their Lord. We tend to think of the meal in very individualistic terms, but that is wrong. It is a group meal in which we all fellowship with Christ together. Just think of how Jesus ends the meal by pointing to that one grand everybody all together marriage supper of the Lamb. This little thing that we do here and now is pointing toward that great thing there and then, a giant all-together meal fellowshipping with Christ. That is why we follow the words of institution and we all eat together and we all drink together at the same time. We do it together. I don't, I don't think it's a sin in, in a church's practice to pass the elements and everybody do it individually. Take it when you feel like you want to take it. But I think it can be very misleading because it sort of makes communion into this me and Jesus moment, right? It's just me and Jesus. The forms we use, the way we do things can communicate error. I kind of think that's why people have done these really weird things like And if you did this, I'm sorry I'm offending you, but I think this is wrong. At your wedding, if the bride and groom alone took the Lord's Supper, wrong. What on earth is that? If you take communion as a family at home, no. If you take communion in your member group, no. If you you take communion all by yourself, no, no, and no. Don't do that. You're missing the point entirely. The Lord's Supper is for when the local church gathers, not summer camp, not campus ministry, not your mission trip. Paul makes this perfectly clear in what follows. Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We use, when we have the Lord's Supper, a common loaf, albeit it's been sliced up into pieces. But the one bread is a picture of the one body of whom Christ is the head. Not one bread for the wealthy and moldy bread for the poor. When we eat from that one loaf, we are affirming that we are the body of Christ here. And what Paul is emphasizing in this text is that when the church comes together, and decides to take the Lord's Supper, they're saying something about themselves. We are this body. Not just we're part of the universal church. No, we're part of this church, these fellow members. I think I can prove this to you from chapter 11. So jump ahead to chapter 11, verse 17. Paul picks up on this theme of the Lord's Supper as the family meal. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. It's not the kind of letter you want to get from an apostle. (laughs) Hi, how are you? I'm not commending you now. (sighs) Because when you come together, by the way, that phrase, when you come together, when you gather as a church, that's a very important little phrase that Paul uses in Corinthians a lot. And it shows that he's talking about when the church gathers when, when, you're, when you're functioning as church, when, when the ecclesia happens, it shows that Paul understands that the gathering is the place where the Lord's Supper is taking place. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We've touched on some of this already, but Paul's being very blunt here. He's saying, look, your superstitious, individualistic manner of, the Lord, of taking the Lord's Supper shows me, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
You can have all the outward forms right and be totally wasting your time. Don't think that just because it's happening, it is happening. (laughs) How are they having some other supper when they thought they were having the Lord's supper? Look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul says, look, essentially, you're doing the very opposite of what the Lord's Supper is intended to symbolize. Instead of being a meal that brought people into one shared fellowship from from every economic, sociopolitical, ethnic background, they had transformed it into a reflection of the world. It was highlighting the disunity, the individualism, and the selfishness that marked the culture, the world. Rich people got lots to eat over here. Poor people, you lose. There's that guy over there. He's getting drunk. That's why Paul goes right back to the words of institution, to the words that Jesus gave us to say at the Lord's Supper. I don't understand how anybody can lead the Lord's Supper and not say these words. It's like baptizing somebody and not saying, you, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're not allowed to skip things or just make things up. And faithful practice of the script that Jesus gives if we pay attention to the words of it, will guard us from so many silly mistakes. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord, whether that was, you know, direct through uh, communication from Christ or through one of the apostles who told him, not sure. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I want you to notice a few things with me. First of all, that phrase, this is my body. Let's just get out of our brains any concept of transubstantiation that the bread turns into the body of Jesus and that he is re-sacrificed every time the mass is held. No. (laughs) This is just common Semitic imagery. You've got lots of problems if you, if, you, if you disagree with me because chapter 10, verse 4, it says the rock was Christ. Well, did Jesus become a rock? <laughs> no. Did, he become, did the bread become his body? No. He's right there when he's saying it. He does, it's, it doesn't make any sense. What is he saying? He says, this bread, this bread represents my body. This bread signifies my body. This is my body, which is for you, huper. It is on behalf of you. This is the language of substitution. It's for you all. It's the plural. In this case, the 11 who are sitting there, and in our case, when the church gathers. Do this, eat it, in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is not the celebration of a dead hero. I mean, Jesus is right there when he's saying this the first time. Do this in remembrance of me. What is it then? The act of mindfulness of what Christ did to redeem us. It's to ponder again his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. In verse 25, it says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Again, the cup of wine does not become magically transformed into a paper scroll, a covenant. It doesn't become the actual blood of Jesus. It represents his blood. When the Bible talks about the blood of Christ, that's just a short form of saying, all that he did in his cross work to save us. So the new covenant, the new covenant that Jeremiah promised, 
The new covenant that is getting ratified the way the old covenant was ratified in Exodus 24. You make the sacrifice on the altar. Moses takes blood from the sacrifice. Half of it he pours on the altar. The other half he pours on you. <laughs> What's going on there? What are we doing? Well, instead of sprinkling blood, whether on altars or doorposts, Jesus says, pick up a cup of wine and drink it to signify that you are completely dependent on my blood, completely dependent on my sacrifice, that I'm the substitute. You're hiding behind my blood. This wine represents my blood, my death in your place. Right? Now, what is happening when all of us are eating and drinking in this way. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as the unified people of God, we are proclaiming the gospel of God, which we are then displaying through simple symbols which Christ gave us when he was about to die in our place. We preach the gospel at the table every time with word and with symbol. And we just keep doing that. We keep doing it and we keep doing it until Jesus comes and we all gather together at his forever table for the new supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is why it is so important we get this right. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore, therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, unworthy manner, come back to that, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Eats and drinks judgment on himself. So now we come to the heart of the argument. What were the two errors Paul's correcting? Idolatry is being excused. Individualism is being excused. They're treating the supper superstitiously. It's a selfish use of the supper. He's going to correct them both with his positive teaching on what the supper is. We've got to look at a couple of things really, really closely. Just look at the words with me in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Some of the older English translations um, gave this a translation of unworthily. Unworthily. And the trouble with unworthily is it makes you sound like you dressed inappropriately for a date. In other words, that it's talking about you getting yourself gussied up good enough to come to the table. We are not worthy. We are not worthy. We are not worthy. I grew up in a church tradition where, where that was pushed on us, and, and if you had sinned that week, you were not to come to the table. The word that's used here means and it's translated well in the English Standard Version, in an unworthy manner. The word means to do and act incorrectly, to do something incorrectly. Paul's not talking about being morally qualified to participate in the table. Paul's addressing how you are actually doing the meal, not your personal worthiness, not your personal holiness, like you had to get yourself into some spiritual state in order to merit or earn attendance at the table. The whole point is that none of us are worthy on our merit, and yet he tells us to come. Second, pay attention to the words here. You've got this consistent use of pairings. Verse 27, eats the bread, drinks the cup, body and blood. Verse 28, eat of the bread, drink of the cup. Verse 29, eats and drinks, eats and drinks. Always in pairs. But then Paul says this in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, not the body and the blood, not the body and the cup, not the body and drinking, just the body. And I think, I know, I missed it for a long time. What's going on here? 
The, the, all these chapters have been coming to this point. When Paul says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, he's talking about the church. That body. He's saying that if you fail to judge or discern who the church is, who the body is, then you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. That is why eating in your homes, having rich people communion and poor people communion, getting drunk while other people have nothing, is a total train wreck of the supper. It's intended to identify who the body is as one people. Paul's using the word body in 1129 the same way he used it back in chapter 10 in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's thinking of that bread as a picture of the local church, the body of Christ locally, the ecclesia, the gathering. So when he writes in verse 29 of chapter 11, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, he means if you fail to look around and figure out who the body is, who the humans are that make up the Christians here, who are the members of this particular body, when you take the Lord's Supper all together, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it improperly. That is the unworthy, the improper manner. Failing to discern the body is taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. One might even say that participation in the Lord's Supper is what constitutes the body locally. Going ahead with your own lavish feast while you make the poor people wait and eat your scraps is a massive failure to discern the body, the church. And Paul warns them that if they keep this up, they will be held they will be held liable for the death of Jesus. It's that important. Verse 30. Instead of rejoicing over his death, they'll be liable, guilty of it. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. But the other things, I'll give directions when I come. There was more. <laughs> this, this whole idea that Paul's talking about the church here, when he talks about the body, is confirmed by what comes then in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The church the ecclesia, the local gathering, is the body. Now, there are all kinds of implications to this. Let me just give you two. Number one, brothers and sisters, let's be sure we are not missing the corporate element of the supper. We're doing this together. It is the family meal, and we should act that way. It is not an individualistic thing. It would be weird if in your family you like pushed back from the table and closed your eyes and ate your food and didn't talk to anybody. It's the family meal. Pull up a chair. Yes, we need to examine ourselves. We'll get to more of that in the next sermon, but the big takeaway for us is the greater emphasis, greater emphasis here is that the supper is for our unity as a church. Now, at the very least, that means things better be right between you and every other member of the church. You can't take from the common loaf if you're treating a fellow member like he's crust from another loaf. We are one. Whether we like it or not, we are one. And friends, there's a Satan, and there's the flesh, and there's the world. And they are doing all they can, all the time, to make it so we can't be one. All the time. Which means we have to fight to be one. Otherwise, we can close our eyes all we want when we get to the table, but the one who sees everything, sees right through our hypocrisy, and he will not stand for it. Second thing I think we should think of 
this is not a magical table. If you have the least ounce of superstition in your heart still, then you need greater clarity on the gospel. If you think that getting the bread and the cup into your mouth will magically let you keep looking at pornography or lying to your boss or drinking yourself to drunkenness or cultivating envy in your heart, if you think as long as I get to the table, I'm good, flee from idolatry. This table is not your rabbit foot, your lucky charm, your rosary, or your four-leaf clover. Flee from your idols. And then run to the table. Because there you're going to meet with your Savior, who is always glad to forgive and restore you if you come looking for him and him alone to be your salvation. So when you participate with and fellowship with the Lord and with all the Christians, be sure you're coming all the way to Jesus and doing it all together. There are lots of ways we can let our culture or experience or assumptions shape what we do. But let's you and me be the kind of people who say, hey, if it's in the book, if it's in that Bible, even if it crushes or dismantles my previous assumptions and preferences, I will do it because the Lord said it and because I love him. May God make it so. Let's pray together. We would feel, Lord, that that imagery you give us in Ephesians 5 about being washed with the word seems very fitting for us today. Wash us thoroughly. For some of us, these are very new ideas that takes time to digest, to understand, to think about, to wrestle with. I pray that you would give grace upon grace. Lord, I pray most of all that as the body of Christ here, we would do everything possible to align our lives as close as possible to your word that you might get the greatest glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.